This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, July 29th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. from Luke 24, verses 13 through 27. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him? But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This is God's word. Thank you so much for being with us. I'm going to pray. We've got a lot of scripture to go over, and so if you bow with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. There is much that you have left a mystery about yourself and your ways, but there is much that you have revealed. And so we gather this morning to focus and to meditate and to learn about those things that you have revealed, asking you, Holy Spirit, to take these words and stir in us deeply in a way that only you can. That you would do the work that only is possible by you. The work that we desperately need. Heart work. Work of conviction. Work of deep comfort. And work of utter transformation in our lives. Lord, help us to see in the picture of the early church that we study, um, not just a moment never to be repeated, but an example to be followed. Thank you for this morning. Pray, Holy Spirit, that you empower me to not get in your way. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So I realize we just read a passage out of Luke 24, and we are in Acts. I thought it perhaps unkind to have the Scripture reader read what we're going to go over, which is Acts 7, 1 to 53. So if you have your Bible, you are going to want to open up to Acts 7, 1 to 53, because we are going to go through all of these verses, uh, and it will go uh, rather 
quickly and you'll want to keep up. These 53 verses, I believe, are the best summary of the story of redemption in all the New Testament. So if you've never read them, well, this will be your first chance to hear them. Even though the Bible contains 66 books in the Old and New Testament, we must never forget that they actually all tell just one story about the one true God and our one and only Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself, as we saw in Luke 24, taught two despairing disciples that every page of Scripture pointed to the cross. Theologian and teacher Graham Goldsworthy said it this way. He says, we don't start in Genesis 1 and work our way forward until we discover where it's all leading. Rather, we first come to Christ and He directs us to study the Old Testament in light of the Gospel. The Gospel will interpret the Old Testament by showing us its goal and its meaning. And its goal and its meaning is to lead us to and from Christ. That's the goal of every piece of Scripture, every part of the Old and New Testaments. And so knowing that, we need to understand a really basic truth that I think is both mind-blowing and simple. If what Jesus did and said is true. If it's all about Jesus, then every truth we believe and every witness that we make, every sermon that we preach, every defense of Christianity that we give, every part of our lives should not make sense apart from the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. All of those things, the truths we believe, the sermons we hear and preach, the witnesses we give, every aspect of our life shouldn't make sense without the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so as I said, we began in Luke 24 where Jesus taught, and I'm convinced that what Jesus taught in Luke 24, He retaught through His Spirit in Acts 7 with Stephen. I think it's the same lesson, if you will. We last left Stephen, one of God's first deacons, first servants, arrested and accused, standing before the same religious group, or at least many of the same men who had condemned and killed Jesus. And Stephen, being as we saw last week, full of the Spirit, had confounded his opponents with great wisdom as he was going around the synagogues, debating with them teaching them, and they became very frustrated with Stephen because his opponents couldn't argue against him. And so, at some point, they decided to be a little more sinister, and they brought false witnesses and false accusations about blasphemy. They claimed that by teaching Jesus' death and his resurrection, Stephen had dishonored God's name, had dishonored God's law, had dishonored God's temple. Those are serious charges, all worthy of death. And so after hearing the witnesses speak as these men are putting Stephen on trial, the high priest turns to Stephen as we see in Acts 7, and he simply asks, are these things so? Now Stephen could have simply said a lot of things there. He could have said, nope, not true. They were giving false testimony. The Bible says that. Stephen knew that. 
He said, nope, they're, they're lying. He could have clarified, well, this is what I actually taught. He could have sidestepped. He even could have argued that this trial is totally false and illegal and a circus. But instead of defending himself, he decides to seize the opportunity under threat of death to defend Christ and tell the story of God. Now, in defending or explaining Christianity, I don't know if you've ever had this opportunity. Maybe you've had it a lot. Maybe you've had it very few times. At some point, someone explained it to you, whether it been a pastor or a parent or a friend. But in defending or explaining Christianity, every Christian should be able to tell the basic story of the Bible from Genesis to Jesus. Or from creation to recreation. This is the prequel to the Gospel. We're into prequels these days. All kinds of prequels come out telling the backstory of movies and where things came from. The story of the Bible, particularly Genesis to Jesus, is the prequel to the Gospel. It's the context to explain who Jesus is and what He did. Because Jesus is the climax of a larger story, and if you only read or study or learn about the climax, you've missed the whole point. It's likely you've misunderstood it. And this is not the story of the Jews. This is the story of humanity. The story of all creation. We must know the story of the Bible because it is the story. It is our story. It is the one story that truly explains where all this came from and why we are here and where we go after we die. Those are the big questions in life that people are trying to figure out. And most are looking in the wrong place. But the truth is, we can only tell the story if we actually read the story. Especially the Old Testament. That part of the Scriptures that many Christians like to avoid because it doesn't seem to apply to today. Or it's just difficult to understand. Unfortunately, what I've learned, and maybe you've experienced this just by observation, but it doesn't take much of a Google search to realize that the level of biblical literacy in our world is staggering. And I don't mean like off the charts high. I mean off the charts low. A recent study within the last couple years found that 45% of those who regularly attend church read the Bible more than once a week. Over 40% of the people attending read their Bible occasionally, maybe once or twice a month. And almost one in five who attend church fairly regularly never read the Bible. Essentially the same number who said they read it every day. Apparently, even though Americans are very fond of the Bible, they have an average of three in their home. They're not reading them. I'm not sure what they're doing with them, but they're not reading them. And I know for many of us, it's like, yeah, those people out there. Oh, come on. We're talking to ourselves. A similar survey done of the Brits. Let's talk about the Brits, right? England. Across the water, so it's not us. 
Their survey found that many couldn't identify basic Bible stories. Almost one in three didn't choose the nativity as part of the Bible. And over half didn't know Jonah was swallowed by some great fish. Around 30% didn't know about Adam and Eve, David and Goliath, or the Good Samaritan. Didn't know those in the Bible. 27% thought Superman might be in the Bible. More than one in three believe the same about Harry Potter, and more than half, 54%, believe the same about the Hunger Games. And you go, who did they ask? Right? I think that survey actually might be more accurate than we think. And all that tells us is people don't know the story of the Bible. And we are foolish to assume that people do. That just because all the exposure to what amounts to lots of churches and lots of Bibles everywhere that people know the basic stories. And because we don't read God's Word anymore, it follows that we don't know it. And because we don't know it, we end up being shaped by all the other competing narratives in the world. And there are a lot of them giving us different answers to life's most important questions. And it seems like whoever is the loudest and the most popular and the most appealing to the flesh wins. But there is only one narrative of life that truly matters. One story that is actually true in all respects. Not myth, but history. And there's only one name given under heaven through which men must be saved, and it is Jesus. And the most important question that anyone can ask before they die, I should say answer, is who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? But the news of Jesus is not the whole story, and without the whole story, who Jesus was and what He did doesn't make any sense. And so, like Jesus on the road to Emmaus, Stephen leads these men through the history up to Jesus. And he gives us kind of five different narratives. I'm sure your Bible kind of breaks it into certain sections. Men have put those sections in there, but it's basically five different narratives. And I'm going to read chunks of them and summarize them accordingly. And in all these narratives, we see this consistent theme coming through, and I want you to listen for it. And it's this idea of speaking, and then sending, and then suffering, and then saving. Over and over again, speaking, and sending, and suffering, and saving. I'll begin in verse 2, where it begins with the narrative of Abraham. You may have heard of him. I won't assume you have. I can't. I bet you've heard of Harry Potter. The God of glory, it says, appeared to our father Abraham. So this is Stephen's defense. He's the first thing he says. He appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. Verse 3, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I'll show you. And then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you're now living, speaking of Israel. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him. And though he had no child, and God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But, he says, I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, 
they shall come out and worship me in this place where he's standing. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. So simply summarized, God appears to this guy named Abraham. He sends Abraham. He promises Abraham a great blessing. And we see that the story of the Bible begins with a man and a family chosen by God among all the families of the world to bless the world through. And while the world would definitely be blessed by what became the nation of Israel, the children of Abraham, it would only be after great suffering. And the world has been blessed by the nation of Israel and by Abraham's offspring. But in Galatians 3.16, the Apostle Paul declares that the one offspring that God was actually speaking about was not the nation of Israel, it was actually Jesus, the only one true faithful Israelite. He is the offspring that God was promising. And so we see, back to Jesus, even Abraham's story is about God's promises being fulfilled in this child that would come named Jesus through faith. And then he moves on to Joseph. Says beginning in verse 8, and the patriarchs, which were the twelve tribes of Israel, right? God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel. He had twelve sons. So these twelve sons were jealous of Joseph. They sold him into Egypt, but God was with him. Verse 10, they rescued him out of all the afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. And now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan, a great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. And when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. So what was just said? Well, in summary, God speaks, didn't mention this part, to Joseph in a dream. He tells his brothers, which makes them pretty upset. Because the dream goes something like this. Hey guys, I had a dream. You're going to worship me. And they're like, what? They get jealous. And his brothers sell him into slavery into Egypt. But it says God goes with him. And through all kinds of suffering, Joseph saves a nation and his family who all end up moving down to Egypt. Remember, Abraham was sent away to Canaan, and now they're coming back into Egypt. There are few men in the Bible, I believe, whose lives mirror so directly Jesus Christ than Joseph. Like Joseph, Jesus was sent away from home. Both were exalted through humiliation. Both are saved through suffering. Both embrace God's purposes. Though they are painful, they declare them as good. And both have, in time, everyone bow to them and declare them Lord and praise them as Savior. It's all about Jesus. He continues and starts talking about Moses. Beginning in verse 17, I believe. He says, But as the time of the promise drew near, what was the promise? 
The 400 years, right? As time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there rose over Egypt another king who didn't know Joseph and all he had done to save the nation. He dealt shrewdly with our race and he forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And as he was brought up for three months in his father's house, and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, he came, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, who were enslaved. It says in verse 24, And seeing one of them wronged, beaten basically, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So we start to learn the story of Moses. In summary, right, as predicted, 400 years is coming to a close. Joseph's contributions to Egypt and the salvation that he had basically assured by his wisdom and God's blessing, all that's been forgotten. And now his family is enslaved. His family has grown from 75 people to millions. And they're feeling threatened by them. And so they start mass genocide. And baby Moses, like baby Jesus, is saved from that mass genocide. And he ends up being raised in the house of this leader, of this godless nation. And at 40 years old, Moses makes an effort to save at least one of his people, but he's rejected by his own people, just like Jesus was. And he flees, and he becomes a shepherd for 40 years, learning how to care for a flock in the wilderness, because guess what his next job is going to be? And at 80 years old, so anyone who's 80 here, don't raise your hand, anyone who's 80, it's never too late to start ministry, right? Never too late. At 80 years old, God appears to Moses, sends him back to Egypt, and empowers him to lead his people out of slavery, just as Jesus led his people out of slavery to sin. It's all about Jesus. And Stephen's making this point. And he continues to go through the story. Beginning in verse 35, this Moses whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge? God did. But who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So Moses' leadership wasn't a very enjoyable experience, it seems. Simply... Summarized, due to their rebellion against God and rejection of Moses as God's chosen Lord and Savior for that time, 
They were forced to wander the wilderness for 40 years until all that generation died and he could take their kids into the promised land. And Moses does say, look, God is going to send another prophet just like me from among you. He will be the true Lord and Savior who will save men from their rebellion. Instead of worshiping the God who freed them, you'll see they asked Aaron for idols. And they worshiped false idols. And they dreamed of what it would be like to go back to slavery in Egypt. Can you imagine? Despite that fact, despite the fact that they rebelled against God, despite the fact that rejected His provision, despite the fact He said, worship me, and they worshiped all kinds of other things, God chose to dwell with these sinners. And He dwelled with them in a very real and tangible way by giving them this tent. Stephen calls it the tent of witness. The Scriptures call it the tabernacle at times. It was a tabernacle designed by God but made by men. And just as the glory in the tabernacle was there. It filled the tabernacle. They knew exactly where God was as they set up their camp. They had a tabernacle in the middle and they'd be like, you know, glowing in, in power. And it was like, there's God. In the same way that the glory dwelt in the tabernacle, John will later tell us in his gospel that the glory of God tabernacled with us. And his name was Jesus. Stories about Jesus. Then he ends it a little bit. And he says, Our fathers, in verse 45, brought it, the tabernacle, in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. And yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hand. Until he tells the story of what became the temple that they're actually standing in, which is actually not the temple they're standing in because it had been destroyed once before. But he says, look, God's presence in this tent of witness, in this tabernacle, went with them. And it went with them as they entered the promised land. Have you ever heard the story of Joshua? Joshua is the general that led them in to get the promised land, taking the people that basically were the kids of the unfaithful generation that came out of Egypt. They go into the promised land, and what leads them is God in His presence. And they battle, and they conquer the land, and the land has rest. And this tent, or this tabernacle they had, eventually became a permanent temple. And it was prepared to be built by the king named David. But it was actually built by his son, Solomon. And at that temple's dedication, which you can read in the book of Kings, at that temple's dedication, Solomon reminded everyone that the fullness of God doesn't actually dwell in buildings made by men. For they cannot contain His glory. The temple always pointed to Jesus who, when He was standing in the temple, actually declared something is greater here than the temple. Speaking of Himself. And He later said, look, I could tear down this temple 
in three days it will be rebuilt. I will rebuild it. Jesus had been talking about His own body. He had been talking about His resurrection for He was the glory of God incarnate. The fullness of God's glory dwelt in bodily form in Jesus. And this is why Stephen had been arrested. Because he had said what Jesus had said. And they go, oh, he's going to tear down the temple. But he was speaking about his own resurrection. Even the temple pointed to Jesus. And so you have this huge story that is leading them down and doing two things. You'll notice in the very beginning, Stephen addresses them as brothers and fathers. And he's addressing them as brothers because he's trying to connect with them and say, look, I'm just like you. At one time, I rejected the truth that I'm sharing with you. At one time, I searched the Scriptures looking for Jesus, the Messiah, and missed Him. But he also calls them fathers. And it's interesting how many times he uses the word fathers throughout this narrative to try and connect them with their fathers who rejected and rejected and rejected and rebelled. And as Stephen's kind of defense comes to a close, he comes to the entire point of the story. This is not just a defense against you know, his false accusers and false testimonies. It's not a defense against sin, it's an attack on sin. This is where he turns. And if you ever tell the story of God to someone, it's important to understand that it comes, there comes a point when you're telling the story of God that there's a turn where you have to call somebody to believe. Where you have to actually challenge them to consider what was just said about what you have shared. And this is what Stephen does in the boldest of ways. He tells a story that they're probably very familiar with. And then he says, you stiff-necked people. You prideful son of a guns. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Verse 52, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, including John the Baptist and many other prophets before him. But you, they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen tells this story in response to charges of blasphemy against God's Word, against God Himself, and against His temple. And ironically, and very powerfully, he ends his story by leveling the same charges against his accusers. He says, they have blasphemed God by resisting the Spirit, just like their fathers did. They have blasphemed the law as ones who know it, received it, and don't believe it because they're uncircumcised in their heart, just like their fathers were. They have killed the Son of God and destroyed the greater temple, the righteous one, just as their fathers did from all the men who spoke before Him. And while these seem like just disconnected stories, what we get is this 
constant theme running through, revealing this is God's story about what God has done and how He does it. Think about this. Every single one of those narratives, you see God speaks to His servants. Whenever He speaks to them, they're not looking for God. They're not seeking God. Abraham wasn't looking for God. Moses was not looking for God. And yet God comes to them. It's always God's choice, God's initiation, God moving first, God speaking. And so He speaks to a servant. And then God sends that servant usually to speak. God appears, says, I'm God. Okay, now go do this. So it's God's choice and it's God's command. He sends always His speakers to go. But there's another theme, right? Those servants. So the servant, okay, God, I know who you are. I know what I'm supposed to do. They start to do it and everything goes poorly. Nearly every time. The first time Moses goes and talks to Pharaoh, he walks in, he says, let my people go. Thus saith the Lord. Who? Yahweh. Busy being a bush. Let my people go, he says. I don't know who this Yahweh is, and now your people are going to work twice as hard. What? And he walks out, and one of the people say, what did you do? You just got us twice as much work. What did you do? And his response is, I, I did what God told me to do. And things got worse. And so what you see is, yes, God appears to his servants, and then God sends his servants, and almost every time, God's servants suffer for speaking God's truth. But the most amazing thing happens that God saves through the suffering of His servants. Every time. You have God choosing and God initiating and God commanding. And then you have God's truth spoken which ultimately results in suffering and salvation by God's power. Now, the entire story of redemption is the story of the one true God, our Creator, choosing to love and pursue and save rebellious sinners. He chooses to save, and He does it by sending broken men to reach broken men. The story, though, is never and was never about men but what God had promised and what God had commanded and how God was saving. And the story climaxed, not concluded. The story climaxed when God spoke fully and finally in His Son, Jesus. And God sent His Son to serve and save sinners. And God's Son, sinless Son, perfect Son, suffered for telling the truth. But through that suffering, God saved everyone who would repent and believe what He had said. Now, turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 4. It's about to get personal. We read something like Stephen, the story of the first martyr, and we go, God be praised that He had the courage to do that. And we read these stories 
so separated from them. As if this will never happen to us, should never happen to us, is not required of us. But the example of Stephen is not merely for the early church. It is for us today. The story is still being told. How do I know that? Jesus hasn't returned. And until Jesus returns and brings that story to conclusion, we still all have a role to play. As one poet said, life is like a song. We have to ask ourselves, what verse are we going to contribute? The song is still being sung. The story is still being told. And though the climax has happened and we know how it ends, we are still going. And we are now called to be Stevens because we are on the same mission that he was. It's no different. Consider what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. So he's speaking about the jar of clay, which is us, and this treasure in us that is much more precious and powerful than crumbly, weak clay. Why do we have this powerful thing inside this really weak vessel? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. Whose story is it? God's. Don't ever say, God can't. Because normally when you're saying, God can't, you're actually saying, I can't. It says, verse 8, in speaking about his own experience in ministry, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also might be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Why were the prophets killed? Why was Jesus killed? Why was Stephen killed? They all spoke God's truth about sin, salvation, and life eternal. The world doesn't want to hear the truth about sin and salvation. But Stephen is not an anomaly. He is not the super-Christian anomaly that we can never emulate or have an experience like his. This is, dare I say, the normal, Spirit-filled Christian life if we are real Christians because we have all that Stephen has. We have all that Stephen has. Let me prove it. Look in verse 13. Since we have the same Spirit of faith. Whoa, 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 whoa! Same Spirit of faith, Paul. No, Stephen had an extra dose. He had some special spirit. He had some unique superpower spirit that I don't have. Wrong. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. 
we also believe and so we also speak. Knowing that He who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into His presence. For it is all for your sake, so that His grace extends to more and more people, it may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. We are called to be more than storytellers. We are called to be witnesses like Jesus, witnesses for Jesus, witnesses through Jesus, because we believe Jesus lived, because we believe Jesus died, because we believe in the resurrection. And we do this so that grace goes to more people and glory goes to God. So as Jesus spoke, as Stephen spoke, if we believe it, we speak. When's the last time you told someone the story of God? When's the last time you shared the gospel? Don't tell me you haven't had opportunity. You haven't seized the opportunity. And the question isn't like, I don't know the story. Read Acts 7. It's that you are unwilling to speak. Perhaps it's because you don't believe. Paul says many times, examine yourself to see if you're actually in the faith. We have a responsibility to share this beautiful treasure that we have in this crusted piece of clay that is ourselves. But it has the power, not us. As Jesus spoke, we speak. As Jesus was sent, we are sent. And as Jesus suffered, we suffer. And suffering becomes so difficult for us because we never expect it to happen. I'm not sure why we have that expectation if our lives are to be conformed to the image of His Son and the sinless Son suffered. As Jesus saves, though, through our suffering, He saves. And I believe He saves insofar as we actually speak for Him. For faith comes by hearing, and that by the Word of God. But we will only speak like this if we hope for more than our own glory in this life. Because no matter how sinless or innocent you are, right? Jesus was sinless, Stephen was innocent, and yet they were still attacked for speaking the truth. So it doesn't matter how perfectly you speak it. Jesus spoke it perfectly. I would say Stephen did a pretty good job. You're still going to be persecuted. You're still going to be disliked for saying, that's sin. You need a Savior. There's hope. And it ain't that. This is what Paul says in this last part. He says, even though his life is wasting away, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light momentary affliction. Light momentary affliction. I realize that many of us who've experienced an affliction in the midst of it, it doesn't feel light and momentary. But I am convinced, and I've said this before, we do not see as God sees and we do not know as God knows, but I trust and believe that we are with Jesus for 70 million years. The greatest successes we have are going to be pretty meaningless, like winning a little red banner for winning some checkers championship. 
and our worst pains and sufferings are going to be like stubbing toes. I didn't say that right now. We don't see and know and understand, and it is only in the presence of God that I think we can fully accept. But without doubt, there is a way for us to be governed in this life to basically deal with what are momentary afflictions. And if you read Paul's resume of pain, of him almost drowning, of being stoned and beaten and nearly killed multiple times, it's interesting that he can say light momentary affliction. He says, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And if Stephen's final words as he looks up to heaven is any indication where he was looking, it seems pretty clear that he was looking to the things that are eternal and not the things that are earthly. What gives us the courage to speak and the strength to endure when we are attacked for speaking the truth? We believe in and live for eternity. Do you really believe in eternity? In the last few weeks, I've spoken to many who have been dealing with terminal illness. Cancers, other conditions. And it's both encouraging and convicting to sit with someone in that situation because they have a much more clear perspective on life than I do. They are assured more of eternity than I am because I'm not facing it or so it seems. Do we really believe in eternity? Are, are, are you living only for this moment that is fleeting or perhaps for the next moment that isn't guaranteed to come? We must live for eternity. For the things that are unseen. For only the things that are unseen only the eternal things, only the things of Christ can actually give us hope beyond hope. Everything else can be taken away. We can lose anything given enough time. We can lose everything in a moment. You may not know, but two years ago, uh, maybe it was four years ago, Went to the T4G conference, so it was 2016, maybe, 14, whatever, the one before this last one. And we stayed with a couple that were relatives of some members of our church. And they blessed us by hosting us, uh, Brian Dixon and I. And they had, um, I believe, five little children. And he just posted um, on two days ago that their six-year-old was killed as he backed over him with a tractor. And I can't imagine that pain. And I met this little boy. He was much younger. And the family's in the midst of grief without question. And it will last many years, I am sure. But in the midst of grief, you can hear them. 
and their deep belief in eternity. There's nothing that cannot be taken away in a moment in this world. And so best we find our identities and our hope in that which cannot be taken away even by death. And that's Christ. Our relationship to Christ is the only thing that can't be taken away. And that should give us the courage, my prayer, to believe and to speak as if we believe. And so I invite anyone today and everyone to believe that you might live tomorrow. And I'm talking about a long tomorrow, not tomorrow. Because we should preach and speak and relate to one another as if this is our last day on earth. That's how we should speak. When I come up to preach with you know, every Sunday, you know what my thought is? I may die. What will be the last thing I said to these people? What will be the last thing I said to my kids and my wife? Let it be Jesus. Let it be directing us to Jesus. Let it be directing us to the Lord and to eternity. Let's pray.